Last week we started off this series with uh, Jack from Water Street Mission. It was a great uh, week together. If you have not uh, seen or heard that message, you can find it on our website. I encourage you to revisit it. He did a great job. And this morning with us, uh, I'm excited to welcome Dan German. And Dan is with uh, the Community Action Program. Uh, I said it, I said I wasn't going to say partnership, but previously known as the Community Action Program. And as we talk about relationship, it's uh, exciting to see that change as well. So I invite Dan forward. I'm going to pray over him, and then it is all you. So Lord, we just invite your spirit to be with Dan as he speaks to us, Lord. We are excited to see what he has for us, to learn more about community action partnership, but also, Lord, to see how we can be released and equipped to bring healing to poverty through those that we have relationship with. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be with you all on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Um, I have two scripture readings for you today. Uh, The first is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Um, And bear with me as I struggle with my new bifocals. Uh, This this could get interesting. Um, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. I am um, a man of many identities. Um, So I am the the CEO of the Community Action Partnership of Lancaster County, which is a 
largely government-funded organization. It started in 1966 and was part of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. Uh, we were one of a thousand community action agencies funded by Sergeant Shriver uh, in, in that year and have been doing the work since then. Uh, I'm also the president of something new called um, Lancaster Equity Community Development Corporation, which was formed out of the uh, previous mayor of Lancaster's uh, Commission to Combat Poverty, which I had the privilege to chair. And I'm also a 2003 graduate from Lancaster Theological Seminary, uh, where I am also an adjunct professor teaching a, a course on the church and social change, um, and also now a doctoral student working on my um, doctorate of ministry. Uh, and interestingly, in the church and social change, um, it's taught by two professors. One is a practitioner uh, in, in social change, and the other is a theologian. And so I find myself tripping over the fact that I'm a little bit of both um, all the time. And so being asked to come and talk about the work that I do in the secular world when I also have a, a theological identity um, as uh, at least an amateur theologian, um, I always find the two worlds mixing. Uh, so several years ago, I was in uh, Tampa, Florida, and I was running a community development corporation there. So the focus was anti-poverty work. And uh, Florida Hospital, a uh, very large hospital chain in, in the state there, was working on their community health needs assessment, which every nonprofit hospital has to do under the Affordable Care Act to show what's happening, what are the, the health disparities in their communities, and then what are they going to do about it as a nonprofit hospital. And so uh, they had called me in because we were, in, we were engaged in anti-poverty work in one of the state of Florida's most impoverished communities. Uh, we were looking at things, to, at numbers, to kind of see how bad it was, and I was getting things from very, very smart people who were saying, we have this many people per 100,000 who suffer from this. And I, it was just a lot of numbers. And I said, I just don't understand what that means. Can you help me understand what that's like? What's it closest to? And so what we discovered was that we had the same health outcomes as El Salvador. We were, we were across the street from Florida Hospital, essentially, as a neighborhood. We were across the street from the University of South Florida, which had a medical school, and the Moffitt Cancer Center, and the James Haley Veterans Administration Hospital, and we had the same health outcomes as El Salvador. We had the same infant mortality rate as Malaysia, and we had a worse HIV rate than Somalia. And so our health was poor, to say the least. And uh, as we worked through this data and we assisted, the hospital came to us to say, how, how can you help us figure out what the needs are? And so as we worked through this, um, I had worked at Welsh Mountain Medical and Dental Center previously in my time in Lancaster. I'd been here for about 13 years before I moved to Tampa. And uh, then I worked at Southeast Lancaster Health Services, which is now Lancaster Health Center. Uh, I'd worked there right before moving. And so I'd seen what living in poverty does to people's health outcomes and the neighborhood that we were serving had no clinic. There was no um, Water Street Clinic uh, equivalent there. And so I looked at the hospital's emergency department data and I said, I think you could actually save money by investing in a free clinic here in this neighborhood. And we worked on it for months, I ran numbers for them. I'd been writing grants for Southeast Lancaster Health Services so I knew how to run the budgets on things like that. I did all of the work. After about six months of planning, gave it to them. And they got back to me and said, um, we're going to work with a church in another neighborhood, and actually a wealthy neighborhood, and there are a couple of doctors there, and we're going to help them do a free clinic every other Wednesday. 
And I said, that won't work. That won't work. The number of barriers, leaving your impoverished neighborhood to go to a wealthy neighborhood where you don't feel welcome. Um, what, if, what if I'm not a Christian and I'm sick? Um, what if I don't have any transportation? It might be four miles away, but four miles by foot with no sidewalks in a bad neighborhood. That's, that's not a great, a great um, access point for health care. What if I'm sick on some day other than those every other Wednesdays? And their response to me was, you have to understand we're a Christian hospital. Now, they didn't know that I graduated from seminary. <laughs> and so my response to them was, I'm fairly certain that Jesus didn't sit in a synagogue in a rich neighborhood and say, if you're not feeling well, every other Wednesday, you should come see me there. You might be surprised to hear that Florida Hospital stopped returning my phone calls after I gave them that response. But what it did to me is at that point, I had to ask myself, am I practicing anti-poverty work in the way that I would see Jesus doing it, in what I see in the Gospels? Am I doing it? I'm, I'm asking them, I'm challenging them, but have I turned that mirror on myself? And what that led to was a series of questions and practices um, regardless of where our money comes from, because government money comes with tons of restrictions. You know, as you hear, uh, you know, a, a group of Pharisees saying, are you following the rules with that, Matt, now that you've been healed? The government that we have is very much like that when they fund programs. Um, and so we wanted to see, regardless of who is funding us, are we practicing this um, the, way that we, the way that we think Jesus would be practicing this work? And so a lot of my work has been focused on that. My doctoral work, um, my, my dissertation when I finish at seminary in, in two years, God willing, um, is going to be focused on how our churches in Lancaster are engaging in, in anti-poverty work. What does that look like? And maybe what should it look like if we're looking at the way that Jesus did his work? So I'm going to talk to you about that today with some very specific examples of what's happening at Community Action Partnership. Um, we've been known for years for programs that are you know, very high-profile government programs. So um, Head Start, we're in the entire county um, as the Head Start provider. Um, WIC, Women, Infants, and Children, um, we are uh, the provider of WIC for Lancaster County. Um, we're actually, we have Pennsylvania's first mobile WIC clinic. We opened that about three years ago so that we could take rural services to people where they are. So again, this idea of come to me in my neighborhood where it's convenient to me, we said that doesn't work. Um, so we, we, we created um, WIC on Wheels, and it goes to where people need to be seen to receive that service. Um, domestic violence services, um, reentry services. So we've, we've been known for these, these programs and services that have been around for a while. What we started to do, though, is ask ourselves, are programs the answer? Um, I think it was, it was fortuitous that you used our old name, because we used to be called Community Action Program. And when I started back in 2015, I got the entire team together, which was interesting in and of itself, if you think about the Tower of Babel story. Um, we, we were uh, 285 employees who had never met each other in the same room in 50 years. And so we went to the, the uh, Farm and Home Center and we got everybody together in the same room. We forced them to sit with people they didn't know. And we said, do you realize we all have the same mission? We have different tasks. One of us might be working at Head Start, one of us might be working at WIC, but we all have the same mission, which is to eliminate poverty. And so we started talking about how do we, how do we get together? How do we start moving in the same direction, speaking in the same language? Because when you speak in the same language and start to build together, maybe everything is possible. And so um, we started to work a little bit differently and see our work differently. 
One of the things I shared with the team back on that day was we got very good at the last word of our name. We were good at implementing government programs. We were excellent at it. Poverty wasn't getting any better. It wasn't getting any better in the city, wasn't getting any better in the county. It was gradually going up year over year, 0.1%, 0.2%. Those percentage uh, points are people, more and more people. And so we were watching it slowly climb um, as we continue to be great at implementing programs that are very cookie cutter. And so um, we had to take a look at that and say, what, what do those first two words in our name mean? Community and action. And maybe that third word should be partnership, if we're really going to do this. We also changed our mission statement. Um, our old mission statement talked a lot about self-sufficiency. And it was a lot of words. It was word soup. And nothing you could ever memorize. I still don't have it memorized. And we changed it uh, to empowering community, driving action, and building partnership to eliminate poverty. Um, I believe self-sufficiency is a myth. I believe we all have someone in our lives somewhere, whether that's a mentor, a parent, a coach, a grandparent, somebody who's seen potential in us and invested in us and been that person to help us as a guide along the way on whatever our journeys have been. And when I see the work of doing anti-poverty work, I think it's very similar to that. It's very similar to that. So we talk to you about what that means. Um, no significant learning happens without significant relationship. That's something I believe. I've got a little guy fishing there because um, we always use the cliche that if you give someone a fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach them to fish, um, they'll eat for a lifetime. I hate fishing. I hate it. My grandfather loved it. If he could have stopped being a carpenter and just fished every day and been paid and, you know, and paid all of his bills with that, he would have done it every free moment he had. And as his oldest grandson, as a man with three daughters, he was desperate to teach me how to fish. Desperate. And I was no good at it. I would sneak comic books along so I could read comic books instead of watching the water do nothing. And I would be so bored and sitting there. And so uh, it, it happened every time I would get my line all tangled up because I wasn't paying attention. And then he'd swap lines with me to fix my line, and I'd catch a fish on his line. It drove him crazy. And the worst was we were on a charter boat. Because he took 20 years trying to teach me how to fish. We were on a charter boat when I was in my 20s. And I still tangled up my lineup. He swapped with me, and I won a fish big enough to win the raffle that day. One of the <laughs> biggest fish on the charter. He was so mad at me. If he didn't love me, he would have quit a long time before he did. He never gave up on me. He never gave up on me. I don't think you can teach someone to fish unless you love them, unless you're in relationship with them. I don't think you can serve people you don't like. I don't think you can serve people you don't love. And so when we talk about teaching a person to fish, sorry, wow. When we talk about teaching a person, as I talk with my hand, um, when we talk about teaching a person to fish, we use it as a cliche, as a throwaway line. It's hard to teach a person to fish, especially if they don't know that they want to, if they don't want to, if they're comfortable where they are, it's difficult. And so as we talk about relationships with people who are struggling in poverty, we have to understand that they may not want to be where we think they should be, and that we've got to meet them where they are and be in relationship with them, and that's a big piece of the work. So we, what we've started talking about is, is relationships instead of programs. And how do we build real relationships with people instead of just offering them cookie-cutter programs that might sound good to us? but that aren't actually all the pieces that they need because people are very complex. I know I am. My doctors 
um, have been giving me the same advice. And I say doctors because I've moved to a couple different states. I've had lots of different doctors. It's almost like they've all had this conspiracy behind my back so that they could all tell me to lose weight. And they all tell me, to, they tell me for years. I'm a fairly smart person. I know what being overweight is doing to my body. But changing your personal behavior is very, very difficult. It's very difficult. And if it's difficult for me, that means I also have to have grace for the fact that it might be difficult for a single mom who's living in poverty and who's been in the same pattern over and over again. And even though she knows it's bad for her, it's comfortable. She knows what it is. It's not an abstraction. And it's a little less terrifying than asking her to step off a cliff edge with us to move towards something that she's never seen before. And so grace is a big part of this work. So I'm going to talk to you about some specific things that we've done. So one of all the crazy ideas that we could have was a food truck. Um, we decided in partnership with the Christmas Addicts Community Center to open a food truck. And actually, we got the name while we were interviewing one of the, one of the cooks. And he, we ended up hiring him. But he said, when you eat good food, it should feel like a family reunion. He's like, yeah, that's a great name. And it means so much when we're talking about not just a family reunion, but a reunion between a person who's lost and their community. A reunion to a circle of support, to social capital, to, to your faith, your spirit journey, to, um, to life, to prosperity. And so Reunion Food Truck was designed to do a couple of things. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, these, are, these have all been experiments. These are all under three years old. And so they could still fail. They could still fail. Like that Tower of Babel, they could all come crashing down on us. Uh, but we also think that if we want to get a different result, we're going to have to risk trying some things that may not work in order to get to something that does. And so Reunion is still kind of chugging along. Where we're starting to see growth is in our catering business. The food truck business is tough, trying to park one of these guys in a regular spot and find a good spot to make, to make some money. But the model is fairly simple. Uh, it's, we've connected it to Christmas Addicts feeding programs. And our thought process is, if we can have a social enterprise where people can eat good food, and know that when they buy from this food truck, they're feeding another family. Um, that's a different business model. Eventually, we'd like to, the food truck to get so successful that the profits from the food truck can help people who are being fed maybe get some culinary lessons, maybe get to the other side of the counter, come work on the food truck, learn how to, the food business works, um, go to a culinary school locally. So we want to create scholarships, and we want to support the feeding programs at Christmas Attics with this food truck. And so um, it's actually been very busy this year. It's, you know, it, it takes a while to build a brand. Um, something like nine out of 10 new businesses fail. And so we've had the ability as a nonprofit to help it through the part where a new food truck would usually go away already. And now we're starting to see it pick up. It's doing a wedding soon. Um, we just did a couple of festivals. We've gone to some food truck places, but it's a different model. It's thinking a little bit differently and it forces us to be in relationship with people. It forces us to maybe ask, is someone showing up for a meal? Um, have you ever thought about the food industry? What industry are you interested in? How can we connect you to other services? Um, because we know you're hungry today, and the old model was, let's just feed you and we'll see you again tomorrow. What we're trying to get to is, how do we figure out why you needed that meal in the first place? And how do we connect with you in a way that we can be in relationship with you to help you not need that meal tomorrow? Um, block captains. So block, I love puns, so if I can find a word with cap in it for, for branding purposes, you'll see it all over the place. Block captains, um, our idea was we need to empower people. That's right there in the new mission statement. And I had someone ask me, 
um, recently, do, don't you think using the word empowerment is condescending? Like you're somehow giving power to people. And I said, no, that's not how I see it at all. I see it as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She always had the power. Someone just had to point it out to her that it was her power, and she could use it when she wanted to. And so Block Captain's idea was to hire someone from a neighborhood that's struggling with poverty and pay them to be an ambassador knocking on doors to ask people what they were most concerned about. And um, we started with Beaver Street. Uh, so what you see here is some Beaver Street neighbors. Uh, we hired someone who lived on Beaver Street for years to be a block captain. We trained her. We took her to Baltimore to teach her how to do community organizing. And she started knocking on doors and asking people. And, and what she heard over and over again, she was on the 300 block of Beaver Street, which is a street that's between the southeast and the southwest of Lancaster City, but is in neither one. So it's a, it's a street where everyone felt ignored for decades. And what most of the neighbors told her was there's an empty lot filled with garbage on our block. And our kids are either playing in that lot or they're playing basketball on the street and one of them got hit by a car recently. We'd like to do something about that empty lot. It's been empty since the 80s. I had hair in the 80s. The 80s was a long time ago. So we held a community meeting. We said, well, let's get you all together so we can talk about what you want to do. And we had 22 people show up, which if, if you've ever tried to have a community meeting, this is from a single block, this is the 300 block. If you've ever tried to do a community meeting with folks who are struggling in poverty, they don't have a lot of free time. But they felt listened to, and it was so important for them, since no one had ever talked to them before, since they were between two borders, um, they showed up. Um, you should note uh, that Beaver Street block is in one of the highest poverty census tracts in the city of Lancaster. So they're feeling all the effects that we're talking about. So they showed up, 22 strong. We fed them, their children could come, and we had a robust conversation. And what they decided as a group was that empty lot should be a playground and a gathering space for our families. And so we said, okay, we better reverse engineer this to figure out how we can support you to get there. And so we said, if, you're, if it's gonna be a playground, we'd have to raise money to do that. Uh, if we're gonna have to raise money, we're gonna have to own it. Right now the city owns it. And if we're gonna get it from the city, we're probably gonna have to show them that we're serious. Um, and so the neighbors decided, well, then let's clean it up. And it was a Wednesday night. It was, I remember very clearly, it was November 1st. And they said, let's do it this Saturday. And I went, holy cow, this Saturday. Okay, we'll have to call the city and see if they'll come take all the garbage away once we collect it, because we can't just leave it there. And, um, and then somebody asked me, are you coming? And I very clearly heard the words that she didn't say afterwards, Mr. CEO. Mr. Fancy Pants, are you going to come and clean up with us? And I said, yep, I'll be there. And so 33 people showed up that Saturday morning and pulled 40 bags, large trash bags of garbage, several mattresses, the bucket seat of a car, and several other things out of that lot. And then these neighbors who were from all over the place, people who uh, were here from Puerto Rico, people, someone from Iraq, there were families there who'd lived there for 30 years, it was this mix of neighbors who never knew each other before this, who worked together with their children by their sides, raking and cleaning. And then when it was done, we all just stood and looked at this beautiful, clean lot that was done. Now we went to the um, Redevelopment Authority after that, and you see the picture of us in our green Beaver Street neighbors t-shirts. Um, no one had wanted this property since the 80s. It's a weird shaped lot very narrow entrance and then it opens up and it's beautiful once you're inside of it. And we went to the redevelopment authority with this plan. Give it to us for a dollar. 
and then we'll raise the couple hundred thousand dollars that we need to make it a playground and a park for these families. And so we went in, high hopes, we had our shirts on, we show up, and the, and the property's listed at $11,000 value. And an out-of-town landlord shows up out of the blue, offering $13,000 to turn it into a parking lot and keep it on the tax rolls. We weren't expecting it. So we had several of the moms and a couple, you see a couple of their kids who took leadership roles in this process. And they went up to the table. We went up to, to be supportive. They did the speaking. They talked about why a park was important to them and to their children. Um, I only answered questions when I was asked about fundraising or any of those pieces. And actually, a, a reporter said to me, um, is it usual for a nonprofit to build a park when all the other parks are owned by the city? And I said, no. We have no idea what we're doing. We're not in the park business. We're in the neighbor business. And we asked these neighbors what they wanted. If they said they wanted a parking lot, we'd be with this other guy. But that's not what they said they wanted. The city gave it to the neighbors for a dollar. If you ever, when you talk about empowerment, if you want to ever see a group of, of women struggling below the poverty line, feeling empowered, those women that night, walking out of City Hall, winning. Um, we've since raised, uh, since that night, we've raised about $76,000 to build this park, and we're, we're in the quiet phase uh, of fundraising for it. And they're with us. They, they go through and do regular cleanups of the park. We're working on getting a trash can. Lancaster Housing Opportunity Partnership and CAP have purchased a house on the block. We're going to start rehabbing one of the blighted properties there and make it available for a first-time home buyer. But the park is the anchor around which we're building this. Capital construction, you see I use that cap again. Capital Construction is a construction crew we started a couple of years ago for people who had barriers to employment. Our first hire had been in prison, had been in state prison for years, and was working uh, for a temp agency. And he'd go someplace, he'd work there for a couple of days, they'd run his records, and they'd kick him out again. Didn't matter if he was doing a good job. He'd, he'd come in, they'd see his record, they'd send him back out. He's been with us for two and a half years with no disciplinary issues. Um, we're actually working on what's next for him. But we started this construction company with the idea that blighted housing is being rehabbed all over Lancaster City. Um, actually, we've now started working in Columbia, too. And we thought, what's happening is companies are coming in and doing that work, but then the money's leaving with the contractors. We're also seeing some of the quality level isn't always the same. So some contractors were doing work that they thought people living in poverty would tolerate. And so what we said was, we've got, we've got to look at a different model. And the general idea is the money for rehabilitation is actually being paid to people who live in the same community, who've been living under the poverty line and struggling. So they're learning job skills and responsibility while they're rehabbing these properties. Those properties are then being sold to first-time, low to moderate income home buyers. And so we're not gentrifying neighborhoods, we're giving opportunity for people who live in those neighborhoods to own a piece of their own community. And then to start to take responsibility for that, that neighborhood, that block. And then finally, the part we can't really measure is that the children who live on that, those blocks see people who've made mistakes, who look just like them, making their community beautiful again, so that residents of our communities can be the heroes of their own stories. And so we've been very proud of this. We actually won um, a national award for this through the uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, which allowed us to start a lead remediation team, and we've just started a facade improvement team where we're going to be launching a new apprenticeship program to try and rotate people through regularly to our construction companies in the community who are really, really desperate for more people to come to work. Navigation is probably the thing that best defines how we see relationship building and anti-poverty work. 
Um, navigation, we've got several different programs. Teen Elect um, works with, um, with teenage mothers who are at risk of dropping out of high school and helping them get across the finish line of graduation and also helping them figure out uh, larger goal plans for themselves and their lives. Um, we Can Do It is something I, I was inspired by my great-grandmother who was one of those Rosie the Riveter women in World War II. I was listening to a group of people in the community say, we don't have enough workforce development programs for women. And I was in a room of almost all women. I was one of two men and I went, what do you mean? And they said, well, we have all this welding and construction and manufacturing and we need more certified nurses AIDS programs. And I kind of said, can't women do all those other things too? I mean, I'm pretty sure my great grandmother was one of the people that helped us win World War II, welding. Um, those jobs also pay a whole lot of money. So if you're a single mom, you're gonna make twice as much as a welder than you would as a CNA. So we started saying, well, how many women out there would like to have those jobs that we've traditionally seen as men's jobs, but we know would immediately pull them and their children out of poverty. Um, and we've worked on uh, a pilot, we now have nine moms who are looking at career fields that have been traditionally male career fields. And the Community Foundation has given us a grant so that we can pay their rent or make sure their kids have shoes on their feet. The Central PA Food Bank is helping us make sure they have groceries. So if they're gonna go to an eight week welding training, they don't have to figure out how to stay alive while they're in training. And we know that the jobs are waiting for them on the other side. Lift Jobs is, is a pilot we just got funded for with Four Seasons Produce, where moms are gonna be uh, supported trainees four days a week working at Four Seasons. We're gonna be helping them, again, with Central PA Food Bank and others to make sure that their lives feel really good while they're making that trainee wage. And then every Friday, we're gonna partner with organizations like Tabor, who's gonna be here in a couple of weeks, and others to make sure that on those Fridays, they're developing themselves. Because as you heard earlier, money is one way we talk about poverty. I think time might be the harshest thing that happens to people in poverty. Not having the time to enrich yourself, develop yourself, have, be civically engaged, have a spiritual life. Um, and community navigation is something that grew out of our work with Ephrata. Several Ephrata churches had a meeting uh, about eight, nine months ago, and they realized that in their benevolence funds, they were spending well over $100,000 as a group and had no idea what was happening. And so we started talking about, could we look at having a navigator within churches? and having someone who is a volunteer who wants to coach and mentor someone who's trying to get out of poverty. And when you think about the number of churches we have in Lancaster County, think about the generational impact if every church, if every congregation said, I'm gonna walk alongside one single mom and her kids and help them get to a place as mentors, as a family, as stable adults that maybe aren't in her life right now, to get to a place where she's not gonna need that support anymore. And so we're trying to think differently. We're trying to shake things up. And we don't know what's gonna work and what isn't, but we're already starting to see the results of that. Um, in the Mayor's Commission to Combat Poverty, we had a goal to cut poverty in half by the year 2032. In our first year of implementation, you didn't see a lot of news about this because it was good news, but in our first year of implementation, 9.2% reduction in the city's poverty rate out of the 50% that we were shooting for over 15 years. Now those are the folks most ready to get out, but that says that when you shift your model to relational versus transactional, versus here's some food, here's some clothing, and instead say here's a relationship, amazing things can happen. And so I'll close, wait a minute, it's not gonna let me close. It wants me to talk to you all day. <laughs> well, it's not gonna, wait a minute, can we go forward? My battery might have died.
So let me close by saying, so what does all that boil down to? And I'm boiling a lot down to a couple of words. But when I look at how Jesus did the work, what I hear first is, do you want to be made well? Because if you don't, I don't know that I can do that for you. I can't make you want this. But do you want to be made well? And if you, if you want to be made well, then I'm going to offer healing without conditions. And after that healing's done, I'm going to offer relationship. Follow me. And maybe even in that relationship, I'm going to equip you to go out and do the same thing for someone else, to be a fisher of men, to go out and find someone else who needs to be asked, do you want to be made well? And create something through empowering people that's bigger than one person or one organization or one program. And so that's our goal. Our goal is to go where people are, ask them what they want, empower them to do that thing, not do it for them or to them, but with them, and then empower them to take that forward and be leaders themselves. And for us, that's how we see how we beat this. Because there's two different kinds of poverty. I had a student say to me in the first time I was teaching the church in social change, the poor will be with us always. Jesus said so. I don't know why we're focusing on poverty for a whole class. And my first thought was, there might be some extra pages in your gospel that you're missing. My second thought was, there's two different kinds of poverty. There's situational poverty where something bad happens to somebody, and that happens all the time. And then there's generational poverty, which is something that doesn't have to exist. And we make choices as a community as to whether or not we're going to allow that to, to exist. And so it's about, can we work together? Can we partner? Can we find different ways to approach this in relationship so that we can make sure genera generational poverty is something that we talk about as a thing of the past? Thank you all for your time today. If you'll, you'll join me in prayer. Gracious and almighty God, we ask that you guide us, that you help us not see the world in cookie-cutter shapes, but you open our hearts and our minds to meet people where they are, to see them as whole people, and to hear them when they tell us their dreams, their desires, and their needs, and to offer relationship to walk alongside them, to find another place that brings them closer to healing and closer to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan.